Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. We're trying to solve the problems of capital with more capital. We're trying to address a certain deficit of consciousness with the exact same frequency of consciousness. And it's a redundant strategy. What's required is actually an ontological shift. Hey everyone, this is Armando Davila at the Earthshot Podcast. I have two guests I'm so excited to talk to. One is an old friend, Lynn Murphy, who I know from my life here in the Bay Area, and another is hopefully a new friend, Alnor Lada. They have published a book called Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, cutting straight to the point of liberating capital to get us to a viable world. So we're not maintaining business as usual as far as I know. Is that correct, Lynn? Yeah, we're looking at how do we liberate capital and alchemize wealth in service of life. So if you understand the existing structures of how capital markets function now, they're not necessarily in service of life and are not often looked at in the frame of liberation. Thank you for that framework. In a, in a short summary, what is post-capitalist philanthropy? And then I'll invite you to just say more about how you both met and how you came to pursue this as a line of work. Sure. Thank you for having us, Amanda. So post-capitalist philanthropy seems like a paradox in terms, and in many ways it is a paradox, especially in the existing paradigm and the dominant culture. And why we put these two apparently juxtaposing terms together is to highlight the contradictions of the existing system. And when we say post-capitalism, we're not referring to some temporal state after capitalism, another ism that is going to somehow save the world or anything like that. When we refer to post-capitalism, we're doing it in the same manner by which postmodernists talk about modernism. So it's more informed by. So there's no dash between post and capitalism. And to be informed by the existing system and the existing paradigm requires that we be good students of our culture. So we look around us and we say, what are the values and the principles of the existing operating system? And you don't need to be an economist or a political scientist to see that it's based on extraction, greed, short-termism, life destruction, and the denial of other ways of knowing and being, other epistemologies, indigenous worldviews, transrational worldviews, mystical worldviews, outside of the dominant paradigm of rationalism, materialism, separatism, positivism, etc. And philanthropy, traditionally understood and its you know, historical etymology being the love of humanity, has actually turned into another externalization and alibi for capitalism. Essentially, it exists because one percenters have extracted so much wealth that they've created this entire you know, 501c3 in the US, that's the IRS legal code, written by the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, and used essentially to extract more from the social structures and give a, a kind of hue of benevolence to their projects, their industrial capitalist totalizing projects of monopolization and domination. We're not saying all philanthropy is that, but the, the kind of dominant mode of philanthropy is essentially that. And we can get deeper into the diagnosis of that and the analysis of that if you want, but that's the, the kind of top line of post-capitalist philanthropy. So it's, it's both a vision and a prayer for what could be if we move into 
different types of values, values of altruism, empathy, cooperation, solidarity with life, interbeing. And that's what we refer to as post-capitalist values. Thank you for both of you setting that context and catching us up to the definition, high-level definition of what you're getting at. But let's, let's situate you two as people for our audience. How did you get involved with this? How did your careers, kind of reactions to the world, opportunities bring you on this path of articulating how we can liberate capital? Thanks for the question. So I am a former accidental philanthropoid, as I would say, and my engagement in different advocacy campaigns across the geopolitical South. And after graduate work, I ended up being asked to go work for a foundation. And I worked there for a number of years and I felt the profound contradictions of sitting as a white-bodied woman in Menlo Park, making decisions about what was happening in other parts of the world where I could make a grant and intervene. In this case, it was a system of education or along a movement of transparency and accountability or other things. And while these things were trying to solve social problems, they were still ensconced within an imperialist frame. They were still looking at modalities of trying to move metrics rather than see humans and humans sitting within an ecology of life. And then, of course, there was the, the paradox of what was going on with the investments of the endowments and then this you know, trickling out of the 5% of grant making in an annual way. And so for a whole bunch of, I can't just say reasons, but kind of a heartfelt sense of another way of being and knowing, I um, resigned and stepped out. And it was perhaps around this time that I, I met you, Armando, when I was looking into different things of non-duality, somatics, ecology, going and spending time in different intentional communities and really listening and looking for how could we be of service in these times. And at the same time, was still continuing to kind of advise within different foundations that were working in different places. And at somewhere along the way, I met Al Noor, who could say more about his background. And he was running something called the rules at the time that was focused explicitly on how to change the rules of capitalism. And you can imagine a project like that would have a very difficult time fundraising. <laughs> and so there was a instigation of doing a gathering for funders to bring them into a space of working on both kind of conscientizing them politically, but also deepening into the inner work that's required for us to make some of these shifts. So jump forward a couple of years and Alnor and I held a gathering. It was the second one of, of this type. I was the first one I was an attendee and we co-hosted the second one called the Transition Resource Circle. And it was the end of 2019, and we did it kind of with, let's bring together a group of funders to really go deep into what we need to do, this inner and outer work to respond to the, to the meta crises, to where we find ourselves in these times. We did it as an offering and as a prayer. The pandemic hit, that group asked us to continue to, to walk with them. And a couple of foundations really went deep into some of what we were speaking to, that this is not wealth that was justly earned. This is the world's collective endowment. The modality and the, the paradigm of philanthropy is inextricably linked to where we are in late stage capitalism. 
and asked us to continue to think about this in a way and kind of go off and listen to a whole number of people about what could be post-capitalist or transition pathways. So the, the work that we steward is called the Transition Resource Circle, and the transition is looking at transition pathways out of systems of exploitation and domination. The resources is what I said in the beginning of a, a kind of a prayer of how do we liberate and alchemize wealth in service and in reverence to life. And circle is invoking non-hierarchical ways of being in an entangled universe. And so Alnor and I joined forces and started co-guiding the Transition Resource Circle and listening. And this book is one piece, one offering that came out of that. Thank you for that rich history. Alnor, please, please tell your side of it. Yeah, so Lynn and I come at this from different ways. She was in embedded in the, the neo-colonialist structure of modern philanthropy at a big foundation. And I was an organizer, activist. My background before that was in political strategy. I used to run a consultancy in London and then moved to New York to do similar work. And part of that work was supporting social movements. And the deeper we would go into the NGO industrial complex, we would see that the funders are the upstream, that the foundations and philanthropic organizations that gave these NGOs money were in many ways tacitly and sometimes explicitly determining their agenda. And so I had a sense that doing some organizing work and conscientizing work in the funder world would be important, but I was always quite resistant to it. And then I was part of the Occupy Wall Street movement in New York, Zuccotti Park in 2011. And a group of us met there and decided that we were going to do a kind of a more global project, a small activist collective and a think tank working directly with social movements, mostly in the global south peasant movements, farmer movements, indigenous movements, other forms of resistance movements that embody alternative epistemologies and ways of being. And that experiment was called The Rules. It only lived for eight years. So from the get-go, we decided that we didn't want to be captured by big foundations. We didn't want to be in the job security perpetuity business. And that what we would do is live for this finite period of time, which would give us some freedom to work together, play together, make trouble together. And in some ways, we thought it would be easier to find allied funders. And as a post-capitalist organization, you can imagine it was almost impossible to raise funds for that project. And we were lucky if we ever had a three-month runway of funding in the, in the eight years we operated. And somehow we managed. And I felt like this eight years was almost like a, a PhD, both in social movement work, but also understanding the psychosis of the philanthropic sector and all their personal whims. And I can tell you hilarious stories about having to meet funders, gurus in order to receive a grant from them and being blackmailed by particular funders in very uh, egregious ways. And, and, you know, I was also taking it with a stride of humor, like this is the, this cosmic joke that, you know, I come from a anarchist political philosophy and I come from a mystical spiritual tradition. I come from a Sufi tribe, the mystical branch of Islam. And I'm in this weird position of having to ask one percenters to fund the revolution or an aspect of it at least. And my interest in philanthropy went from like disdain, having spent so many years fundraising to a sort of sympathy when I started to get to know the funders better and realize that they feel deeply trapped by the burden of wealth 
and that everyone around them wants something from them and that they've constructed these Byzantine courts of yes people. And then it, at some point shifted to, to empathy and really only at that point did I feel ready to, to do some of the funder organizing work because I didn't want to come from a place of superiority or disdain or avoidance. I wanted to come from that heart-centered place, as Sufis would say, like breast to breast. And in that journey, I met Lynn, who yeah, became a sibling and a teacher and a mentor and a sister in the, in the process. And we decided to do this work together. And after we closed the rules in 2019, I took an attempted sabbatical, but it was kind of the 17-month period of, of no money, of no income. Uh, and I created an altar and I decided that, you know, I would just ask how I can be in service to the mother, to divine emergence without making any decisions. You know, I could take notes and journal if ideas came as I sat on my altar morning and night, but no big career decisions. And it emerged as we did this last group in 2019 and Lynn and I did this accompaniment, you know, really as volunteers and as allies that at the end of my sabbatical period, that what we call a temporary organizational zone was emerging that, you know, we're not going to set up an NGO. We're not going to be committed to doing this from some long period of time or celebrate our 20th anniversary or anything like that. We borrowed from Hakim Bey's uh, temporary, temporary autonomous zone and remix it in a temporary organizational zone. And so, the, yeah, this project of TRC emerged. And as Lynn said, we had one particular funder ally in the Reynolds Foundation that really supported us to, to write this book and really gave us a lot of encouragement and allyship and, and also showed us the possibility of what post-capitalist philanthropy could be as we started to meet these foundations that were, were living the values we were talking about. And, and embodying them. And, and so the journey began. And uh, yeah, the book, as Lynn says, is just is one offering as, in, in part of that process. We do one or two annual gatherings a year to bring funders together. And we joke that it's a, a kind of mix between a mystery school and an AA extended meeting. just listening to your stories. Both of you are really talented speakers, in my opinion. I'm going to jump in in one place, just in an area that I've been wrestling with. So we're Earthshot Labs. We're trying to finance large-scale ecological restoration, conservation projects. Most of my leftist friends like hate carbon markets. I was kind of like against them. I saw in one of your webinars, you said they're like a Horizon 1 solution. And what we want to get to is Horizon 3, which is directly working on a viable world, not constrained by the systems that exist as maybe an imperfect or perhaps wrong framing. Shift that came to mind once being in the industry is like, oh my God, like 
it's either people do like a grassroots ecological emergency mobilization that is just we're doing it because it has to get done vibe. But if people are going to have like a livelihood or make money or be any kind of like kind of a dignified interface with the global economy, then they should get paid for this restoration work. And then before I was like anti-corporate, a lot of disdain, a lot of hatred for the situation we're in as a world. And now I'm just like, wow, if they don't put money into this restoration, that's also a huge problem. And so I'm kind of just like sitting with Horizon One solutions can have like some temporary benefits working with the system as it is. But what we really need is to just go straight to what's viable. And in our situation, we're dealing with funders. So corporates, investors are the ones who have the money to pay for the large scale restoration work. And are we going to get another system to get our needs met in the short term when everything feels very acute? I don't know. But I'm like interested in going straight into how do we liberate capital and what are we asking people with capital to do? Because we're in this moment of intense inequality and that's bad because money isn't flowing to activities that would secure the world. And then people don't want to deploy money unless they feel like they are going to get a high enough return if they have the money. And they're the people who are stewarding the large amounts of capital the world needs to get some of the work done. And so how, how do we orient to that? I think a parallel ana analogy with fossil fuels is we use the fossil fuels to go post-fossil fuel. We use the capital to go post-capitalist. But the dilemma I'm feeling right now, and just in our own industry of just the cap, the, the money needs to flow to get the work done. And what's the alternative? Maybe I will just step back for a second and say, well, like, let's look at how the broader economic operating system works in a debt growth-based system, as the, the one we have under the aegis of neoliberalism, which is the, the, the current paradigm that you know, any nation state, every nation state basically operates under, even if they claim to be socialist, they have a growth imperative. And with the imposition of the World Bank, the IMF, US and Eurocentric multilateral organizations like the UN, what ends up happening is this sort of imposition of a particular way to orient the economy. Basic economics 101 of it is that your growth has to exceed your interest rate for money to be valuable. And at a growth rate of 3%, which is what economists and the World Bank and others tell us is the minimum growth required in order to move the global economy along, what that ends up doing is doubling the global economy every 24 years. And so 3% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a compound exponential function. And so imagine doubling the amount of single-use plastics and Big Macs and Toyota Priuses and Apple computers, etc. It's, it's physically impossible. We've crossed six of the nine planetary bounds. We have 200 species a day going extinct, 1,000 times the baseline rate. We're in the midst of the sixth great extinction. We are using the key components necessary for capitalist industrialist growth at a way faster rate than the Earth can regenerate. And so it's the first time economists and ecologists agree that there will not be another doubling of the global economy. So in our lifetime, this house of cards, this Ponzi scheme of late stage capitalism is going to collapse on its own weight. And so then the question is, well, if that's the bigger picture, how do we orient within that picture? And one of the things Lynn and I argue is that our first step is actually to be good students of our culture. If we spend one third of the time contemplating the political economy and its constraints and how it mediates every aspect of our lives 
that we do on, let's say, self-help and personal growth work, we would already have a revolution on our hands. And what ends up happening is we perpetuate this cycle because we're ideologically ignorant as a culture, by and large, you know, and I'm speaking in generalistic terms, but referring to mainstream media, referring to the majority of people in Western Europe, North America, etc. And w what ends up happening as a result is that if we were to step back and say, okay, look, 93 cents of every dollar ends up in the hands of the top 1%. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's green capitalism, quote unquote, as if such thing can exist, or social entrepreneurship, or doing consciousness expanding work, if there's a monetary aspect to it, it's contributing to inequality. Every dollar of wealth created is actively creating poverty and inequality. Because we have a fossil fuel extractive based economy, every dollar of wealth created is heating up the planet. Capitalism creates climate change. We're now mitigating for a three degree rise in temperature. That's correlated to 30 to 40% biodiversity loss on this planet in the next 30 to 50 years. We're mitigating for a billion climate refugees, a massive dieback in population. Some estimates are three to four billion, others are higher. And so to think of reform in that system, when you, when you have this larger constellational and add a historical worldview and, and understand that you know, capitalism was created as a project of Eurocentric supremacy and imposed around the world, you know, we used to have many ways to acquire goods and services gifting, bartering, trading, hunting, fishing. And now all of that is mediated by debt-based capital printed by federal reserves in a growth debt-based system. What that means is that capital mediates every aspect of our lives and it determines where we grow up, what access to education we have, what kind of jobs we work, what kind of spare time and leisure time we have, who our neighbors are. All of that is determined by the capitalist system. And so to financialize more and more aspects of our lives as if that's going to be the solution is part of the Eurocentric fallacy of logic that we impose, right? We're trying to solve the problems of capital with more capital. We're trying to address a certain deficit of consciousness with the exact same frequency of consciousness. And it's a redundant strategy. What's required is actually an ontological shift. You know, we call it justice plus onto shift that Okay, financial inclusion, justice, these things, they may get us a seat at the table. They might bring more people into the room, but they're never going to let us leave the house of capitalist modernity. And we have to reorient our strategy from one of expanding the house, which is a life-destroying imperative, to one where we start hospicing modernity, as Vanessa Andriotti would say, and thinking about transition pathways where less money is required where more bioregional and local resilience is created, where we have strong localized economies and communities that are food self-sufficient, water self-sufficient, medicine self-sufficient, etc. And that is a more interesting proposition than expanding markets. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some short-term Horizon One benefit to incentivizing people while the existing debt-based system works. I personally don't want to spend my time doing that, and I'm not against others doing that. I think an ecosystem of approaches is going to work. If we believe that any of these solutions are the solution, then we get into this other problem of universalization and delusions of grandeur and all the other things that the entrepreneurial capitalist carbon market culture smuggles in 
as part of its vision of the world. Being a good student of our culture, doing the decolonizing, deprogramming, deconditioning, unlearning work, as well as thinking non-laterally, moving the dominant ontology and dominant cosmology from this rationalist, separatist, materialist worldview to one that's more relational, more quantum, more queer, more based on interbeing, is going to open up visas of possibility that we can't even imagine from our current vantage point. Thank you for that answer. Lynn, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Sasha React. Laura said a lot of how we orient to this question. I keep reflecting on something that Taj James said, which is capital is energy and it wants to flow like water and water flows to the lowest places and it needs to flow. And that which is not flowing is continuing to be in service to the forces of colonization. And I bring this up because I think we can often speak about imperialism or colonization or the project of white supremacy and still overjump what is going on within us that keeps us caught in the need for certainty, the addiction to comfort, I would even say in the Western, the Western Occidental tradition. And so where that leads me to wealth holders is to really sitting with, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. That's not where my, I have developed my acumen, but it's sitting with like, what is it, this compulsion to have a larger return on what was given at this time where, as Alnor described, where the system is about ready to collapse and we're seeing growing and growing inequality and growing bifurcation. And then where I also sit with this is what you spoke about the horizon one and using the markets. I was reflecting on what is it actually to talk about just transition plus ontological shifts around, let's say, ecological restoration. And in that, we often will hear that the indigenous peoples are often stewarding large swaths of the forest and have had traditional ecological knowledge. And what I observe is that that word gets thrown around, but it gets almost like remixed and re-commodified back within the logic of kind of Western ways of knowing and seeing. So it, it'll be like, okay, we'll respect traditional ecological knowledge if we can see the metrics of how much forest is preserved, how many species are protected. And so at, at the heart, we're still continuing this, these systems of domination and exploitation rather than doing the arduous work, I would say, of letting go of our certainty and our comfort and being with the friction between these different cosmologies. And in that space, then how do we work with the values that Alnor was speaking of, what we speak of some of these values of post-capitalist realities or of sitting with quantum ethics or what is it to be in queering? And so then to come back to where you started, Armando, you know, there's growing inequality. Isn't it that people need to be paid for, for protection of this or some sort of sense of, of restoration of the ecology? And of course, in that sense, we're not arguing against that. It's more that for us, justice isn't like an end state. It's not an idealized or static. It's an ever becoming. 
And it is an ever becoming with all of us, including those who have the capital, do the arduous work of sitting with being a good student of a culture, of letting go of the certainty of the control. And indeed, I would say even having a really harsh look at what is enough to continue to exist. Now I'm getting into a whole other territory of how the entire Western way of living has to be shifted into getting over our addiction to comfort. And maybe I could just add one more thing, Armando, on that. Let's use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure. We're totally down for that and support that. And the manner by which we approach is everything. And so we probably have, you know, 10 years left of the Western way of living. Maybe there's 20, seems doubtful, but that could happen. And we might get close to this doubling with lots and lots of nefarious consequences. And then the question is, the day the dollar dies, to use Peter Tosh's framing of it, who are you going to be? Who's going to be around you? Who's actually, who are you going to be growing food with? Who are you going to be living in community with? And that lens matters. And also the lens of what archetypal role do you want to play at the end of time? Do you want to be a money hoarder? Do you want to be someone who requires that their undeserved capital requires interest and needs to exponentially grow? And so, yeah, there's ways to free capital, but it doesn't look like a venture capital firm investing for interest in so-called environmental social projects or whatever the current alibi framing is. It's like, can you let go of the thing you don't deserve and not take credit for it, but see it as you have disproportionate stewardship over capital that has been acquired over five centuries of rape, pillage, genocide, enslavement, colonialism, imperialism, and let that burden go and send it to the places that matter and allow those people to make the decisions for themselves rather than making up carbon schemes or whatever the framework is. That's a fundamentally more interesting approach. And I would say that there's karmic spiritual implications and other unattended consequences that we don't often talk about in materialist, rationalist culture that need to be put on the table. I feel like as a person, I, I struggle to bring all these dimensions and strategies and things into a neat package. But one way that I've thought about the carbon market, just to keep it within our discourse, is that first of all, the whole thing is voluntary, the space that we're operating in. Companies don't have to put any money down whatsoever, but there's consumer demand. Consumers are like, prove that you're not really, really bad people. Do some harm reduction, throw money at trees, throw money at projects. And we entered this space being like, okay, 
let's try and get these money for projects. We have like a baseline amount of ecological restoration and conservation needs to happen to meet our probably stranded Paris Agreement. That amount isn't occurring. Capital's stranded. The terms for giving out that money is very constrained. It's like you have to prove all these things and it is very metrics oriented. And there's this one example is at this conference in San Jose called Verge and Salesforce, I think, put forth a platform where they're doing independent ratings of the projects and how investable they are. It made me so frustrated because I was like, wow. So we're disincentivizing money going to certain projects because of certain sets of criteria, but we're totally missing the mark on the whole of how much work needs to get done. And if that work doesn't get done, then we're fucked. It's also like, who's fucked? Not everyone's equally fucked here. It's a deeply unjust and equitable situation, but I feel like we need to be giving everything for everything right now. And these carbon markets should be an act of intentional reparation. One way is that our thinking aligns is I feel like we should be restoring every bioregion at a time. And all the money and all the communities should be like, okay, how do we get this region of the world to survive and thrive given what kind of impacts we know are going to happen? Here's the money from the global north because we got the problem. Here's your landmass. We're relying on you for our collective survival to restore it in a way that makes sense for you and for everyone else because multilateral integrity to the project outcome is what makes the project secure. Here's our act of reciprocity for the harm we've done. Please use it to restore and conserve nature and take care of your climate adaptation needs and align with your life plans, et cetera. There, have it. Make it work because we're all relying on you. Basically, they're like socio-ecological development projects. These projects are trying to get funded. And and yeah, it's just it's not happening at a rate that is going to protect us. And there's this predisposition to technological fixes because people are thinking about it in carbon fundamentalist ways. It's just frightening and scary. But then the local contexts are also super delicate. There's all kinds of like power struggles and corruption and patriarchal dynamics and local level inequities. It's mind blowing for me to try and figure out like, how is this really going to work in a way that meets the world where it's at, that prevents worst case apocalyptic scenarios to the degree that they can be and feels good ultimately. Because I think the thing that I don't get heard said enough is that the process of us rallying successfully to the degree that we can in this moment would be ecstatic. Like I'd be so thrilled to see the world respond on wholesome terms with like justice and visionary futurism at the forefront of the ethic guiding how we respond. But it feels like such a tough nut to crack. I just want us to see us pull it together. And I see y'all putting forth almost like the Underground Railroad for money. <laughs> how do you liberate money? Well, tell us more about the framework. Perhaps I can kind of just offer a subjective view that Alnor and I came to of an offering of what we would refer to for transition pathways. And then maybe with that, we can come back to the many dimensions of what you offered there, which is not unique to this moment. This has been some of the issues with power, with money, with the the very epistemology of problem solution that's been going on for 500 plus years that wants to thingify humans and nature and takes us out of an animate call and response way of being and living and perceiving. So I'll just lay out a little bit of what where we speak up for the transition pathways, then Elnor can riff on that and or go deeper into some of what you laid out there. 
So we came to something that we call the five element mandala. And we use the mandala image as a journey to the inner and to the outer. And we looked at kind of the, the medicine maps that had elemental forces. Let's just start with one of the axes that we're speaking of, which is the restoration axes. And so to there, we had the element of water and the element of fire. And the element of water speaks to solidarity with indigenous peoples, recognizing that they are stewarding the forest, that they are stewarding watersheds, that they have had to already survive capitalism for hundreds and hundreds of years in a way um, many of them are, are already and continue to live what we're speaking to of these post-capitalist realities in the ways of living and being with, with water, with forests. And what is it to reflect on? What is restoration that actually takes in a historical structural perspective that intends to work on restoration of right relationship with all of life? that works to what you spoke to, reparations, that really does look to reciprocity. And the other side of that axis would be solidarity with social movements, especially those that are where the world's majority is, are in the geopolitical South that are on what often get called the front lines, but are actively trying to protect. And we call that the fire element because they're catalyzing and often trying to burn through and or have to be in resistance to continuation of exploitation and domination. And we speak to that axis as restoration and solidarity with the recognition that solidarity is not something that I can just assert or stay, but it's solidarity is an ongoing praxis, especially for someone like me who's in a white body, who comes from the geopolitical North, who has been trained through schooling and through the lens of modernity to thingify, to want to control, to want to see how things go in a way that makes sense to me. And what is it to actually humble ourselves and walk in a way where solidarity is asked for and with, and where allyship isn't something that I impose upon, but that comes from those, those peoples and from those movements. And so we also see that restoration is where you kind of have to restore the energy before a state change can come. And so that takes us to the vertical axis. And at the top of the vertical axis, we have the air element. And there we're speaking to what is it to look at post-capitalist cultures. And as we were doing this research for this, what we recognized was that there's truly a dearth of the collective imaginary of what are life-centric systems. What would it look like for post-capitalist realities. And we call this new ancient emerging. So we're not in the binary of old culture and new culture. We're recognizing that there's kind of a remix, but there's a lack of the, the collective imaginary right now. As we know, the cliche goes, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. That says something that's in our collective psyche. And so we recognize that we need work on memetics and cultural narratives, and we need artists, and we need others to kind of be the vanguards to help us through this transition pathway of the collective imaginary. And then the bottom of that is the earth. And that is where we talk about post-capitalist infrastructure. And this is where we look at bioregional, food, water, health, education, cultural sovereignty. And it's the, it's the hard work of putting into material form 
what the infrastructure is that's not rooted in systems of exploitation and domination. And in the middle of this mandala, we have the ether. And this is really a recognition of there needs to be a reckoning with life force itself. Life force meaning that which, you know, all flowers, trees, the soil, everything is in relationship with this, this energy of life force. It's where we see the work for trauma, not for a means to ends, where we work on trauma to get people to be more productive in society, but we recognize this historical injustices and what's going on epigenetically and ancestrally that has to be worked in. And it's why we speak about mystery schools and nature-based initiation. There's, there's a recognition that we, in our, our addiction to materialism and Cartesian notions of logic. So we offer that and there's different people and institutions that are doing work along these different elements of the mandala. And we also have some, again, our subjective view of how forms of capital, the endowments within philanthropy, the grant making, the other things can actually be deployed to support some of this work as what we call these transition pathways. So coming full circle to what you said, Yes, you know, I'm quoting Bio Akumalafe. It's like times are urgent. We need to slow down. The slow down isn't the do nothing and go into the fight, flight, or freeze response, kind of getting into a numbing. It's it's so that what Elnor said, the manner by which we approach something, that we can actually perceive whether we're sitting within, I'm trying to be means to ends instrumentalists, or can we actually sit with this ontological shifts? and recognize that we're in service and in reverence with life and we're asking, we're humbly coming and we're in a co-creative potentiality with Gaia herself. Thank you for elaborating on that. One way that I've come to a similar conclusion in my own life was I used to hustle these climate emergency declarations here in the Bay when my mother was on the city council and the goal was to get the Bay Area to do a climate mobilization. And then that whole thing, took off and that climate emergency movement like took off. And I came to the same conclusion when right around the Green New Deal was being championed that if we mobilize the economy to make it green or sustainable or whatever, that puts the United States in a position to gobble up all of the resources again, because just to do that for ourselves would be tremendously resource intensive. And so I then thought, well, actually, maybe we just need to stop and like really take stock of the situation we're in because our survival horizon is pretty vast. We're supposed to survive on Earth indefinitely. And so we only really need to get this right once to the point where we can continually refine it. But it's like urgent now. And so if we actually shut down the economy, we buy ourselves time in a way that is planned, coordinated, safe, and effective. Then we buy ourselves more time. We extend our carbon runway. And then we can actually do the hard work of considering the history, coming up with plans that account for everyone, actually coordinating as a world, thinking through what world do we want to transition to, how does it look, feel, and function, and then train everyone to be able to participate in that and have a dignified worldwide participatory process that we felt good about. I called that one world one. Well, it's not a climate emergency mobilization. It's just a hard reset and anchoring ourselves in the vast future survival horizon that we actually sustainability requires. I'm curious what parallels you see between investors and the philanthropic center. How do we how do we liberate this capital? Just say it again. Yeah, if philanthropy is the um, charity 
slash alibi arm. The investor arm is the arm that's taking more with the other hand. And so the aim of liberating and alchemizing capital, it's sort of true for both hands, which is just give it away. Stop trying to increase your financial gain and invest in biophysical assets, land-based projects, indigenous peoples, social movements, new ancient emerging narratives, and do it as gift. And in the spirit of gift, so much more will, will be born and new cultures and embodied cultures emerge from that space. I often say that Lewis Hyde's The Gift is a critical text in the space and, and I think it's a good bridge for those socialized in Occidental, Western, Cartesian logic, that really understanding the, the animistic aspects of gift and also the animistic aspects of money and capital and what they do and what they want and how they live within the body somatically, how they occupy physical resource and physical real estate in the body, and that the practice of decolonization is not just an intellectual practice. It's not an exercise of simply deconditioning the mind, but rather the mind, body, spirit, psyche complex. And wholesale giving money away, rather than doling it out with all these conditions, whether they be grant conditions or investor conditions of paybacks and interest and whatever, that's the direct route. That's the direct path to the liberation of capital and also the, the liberation of self. That's, that's the, the, the inner and outer are mirroring each other. Like the world we see externally exists in this way because our internal disposition and our ontology, ontology comes from the Greek word onto being, sometimes it's said as vision, but the way we see, relate, analyze, and embed ourselves in the world is itself colonized. And so the internal and the external meet through ontology. And the shift of ontology happens through embodied action. And so when you live in the spirit of gift and generosity and altruism and solidarity and interbeing and cooperation with the human and the more than human realms, the animate universe responds, responds back to us. And there's this interface through the ontology where Gaia and her will and the myriad of beings and their wills start responding to us. You know, there's this old indigenous saying that nature trusts those who trust nature. And it's a similar thing. When, when you're living in an animate universe, you're a fractal of consciousness itself. Our actions are declarations to the living cosmos of who we are. And so it's not just an intellectual exercise. And to really access that root source code within us that believes that undeserved, unearned capital in a rigged lottery system somehow entitles us to the growth of that capital, that aspect of us needs to be eradicated. It needs to be annihilated and integrated because it's not simply the removal of it, it's understanding what motivated us for so long what motivated this 5,000-year project of modernity from the first city-states to, to now. 
and the, the logic of hierarchy and patriarchy and uh, Eurocentric supremacy and violence that's been determining our ontological worldview. And all the enlightenment logic and the scientism and the dualism and the, the separation of body and mind and mind and matter and the white Christian European and the so-called others of women, indigenous people, brown and black bodies, etc., that could be used as resources for more accumulation. That is where the healing is going to happen. And that's where both the liberation of capital and personal liberation lies. And maybe I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll say the prayer that we opened the book with. And it, it sort of gives a sense to how Lynn and I see ourselves within this work. And also that we ourselves are colonized and we ourselves are doing the deconditioning work as spiritual political praxis. It's ongoing. So we're not saying this from a position of superiority or we know better, but we're in an open inquiry and we're doing that inquiry out loud. And hoping to shift public discourse, not through our thinking, but thinking of us as fractal aspects of each other. You know, we're, we're telling people what they already know, and we don't want to be projected on it, and we don't need attribution, and we don't need a central role in the discourse. That's why we say what we're doing is a temporary organizational zone. Like, if it's of no use, and it falls on deaf ears, and the culture continues its machinations of growth and destruction, then, okay, how do we recalibrate and decide what karmic roles we want to play? And so that's where we come from. And so the dedication, I'll just read it. It says, may this text slash conversation serve the healing of all beings, including the fallen deity of money and its offspring, shadow and alibi, philanthropy. And we could add investing here. May the colonized mind and body be liberated, including our own. Yeah, that'd be so... Also dabble in the somatic meditation, transformational cultural journey work in my own way. And I was reflecting on how I haven't gotten the basic tenets of like Buddhist practice right. Until you abandon the cause of suffering, you can't expect the suffering to stop. And I was using that to reflect on all the ways in my life that I consciously choose self-harm. And just clinging, clinging to the continuance of suffering. It's scary to consider living through a radical systemic shift, but what what you're describing, and I think what most of us who have internalized the degree of the harm we're going to live through on the path that we're on is that way out of these worst case scenarios that we have 
pretty well rendered is experiencing alternative unknowns that we can hardly render imaginations for. And some of us are doing pretty damn well, though. And I want that for us. I want I want us to start experiencing these radical systemic shifts that anchor us in our truths and prioritizing everyone's equitable survival based on, from from here on out. And I really appreciate y'all giving us energy and vitality and consciousness and structure and form to help move us there. And I'm curious to hear what happens in these transition circles. If, say, someone that's listening to this podcast has capital they're stewarding and they want, they've been touched and moved by this conversation, what can they expect as a pathway forward to engage with y'all? If it's possible to just first like riff off of what you said, like where Alnor and I kind of came in the end of the book is, is what you were speaking to, which is our way of seeing more of a spiral of the Bill Sharp's three horizon. And it's for us to recognize that we're meeting, we, there's no other choice in a way, but to surrender in this moment. And for a very deep inner let go of our ways of working and being and or there can also be a clinging and a grasping. But this is where we saw is like, can we actually surrender? And in that, then the pathway, the next horizon and that spiral would be to recognize that we are at a very deep threshold, an initiatory moment as a species in our cosmologies and our way of being, living, doing, relating. And can we really embrace this as a threshold of initiation? And then in that, can we walk each other into the unknown? Can we re-enter this continuum of life and death that always ever has been and always ever was that's outside of this temporality, outside of the construct of time? And many spiritual traditions give us different compasses of how to be with that. And that's one way that we sat with how to meet this moment in what we call the age of consequence. So if I blend that piece with if someone was to to come to the gathering and or engage with us, it's really an active working on these inner and outer structures. You know, one frame we give it is the Anthropocene or the Kali Yuga, but it's really looking back and forth for what we have to work on within us. And we move with, as Alnor said, kind of the political and in this way, we would say spiritual, but I would say ceremonial that we're working there. And we have an embodied praxis and way that we move and with political analysis, with embodiment, and then really listening and listening to emergence and its circle. So it's not that Alnor and I are there as the leaders or the ones that have the answer we're ones who are holding a field and collectively we're, we're holding that together. And rather profound things have, have come through and we can't necessarily say what that is because it's the bringing together who it is that shows up and sits in this circle and wants to be in this inquiry together of how do we see transition pathways? You know, how is someone navigating the institutional constraints of trying to move this and or responsibility to grantees out there or getting off of the, the endowment cycle and or really being with the, the profound fear that can come up when we start to really move capital in a whole bunch of ways that we don't actually know what's going to happen. Elnor may want to add a lot more body to that and say what he feels with what you shared at the end there and also what it is to sit with us 
on the on the ground close to the earth and listen. You know, I when we were interviewing publishers for for the book, one of the things Lynn and I said was, "Okay, we're gonna find a publisher that's cool with Creative Commons license and a free PDF that's downloadable on Gift or whatever, and no book tour." You know, like I, I often joke that I'm an entrepreneur that I don't want to sell anything, brand anything, market anything, including our own book, right? Like, I'm not really in the business of saying, like, how people can engage because it's just, it's like, this is just one offering. And if you're interested in the book, great. And if you're not, great. And when there's resonance between hearts, you know, we find ourselves together. And and, and I trust that. And uh, we try to embrace this kind of Taoist principle of wu-wei, action on action. is not pulling anyone in or pushing anyone away, but just trusting the emergence that happens when there's a, a sink in resonance, when there's a, a desire to sink ontological worldviews, and to be committed to the transcension of subject-object as spiritual political practice, to go beyond oneself and be in service to something bigger than our individual identities or the desires that we've been conditioned to have, and to let go of, of what we think we know and all the certainty and all the entitlement and all the victimhood that comes with believing we know what we want without ever questioning whence do these desires come. Thank you for that. Yeah, I feel like y'all laid out a beautiful spread of your sharings and insights and talking points and orientations for us. And so I said, thank you for being willing to give this transmission right now. And any folks who are listening, who are stewarding capital that you can share to stabilize and secure this world in this moment of crisis, please, please consider the gravity of what these two folks are talking about. How can I liberate my capital? I hope that's a question we all take a walk away with. And yeah, if you have any closing statements, please offer them. Otherwise, thank you so much for speaking with us and look forward to seeing the fruiting bodies of your work. I'll just say the the Arabic gratitude zikr or mantra, which is Shukran lillah wa alhamdulillah. All praise is due to Allah, the Most High, but we are Allah becoming self-aware. And Allah is a metaphor for the consciousness, for consciousness itself becoming self-aware through us. And so shukran is an odd to cosmic entanglement to the ancestors and the elements and the fossil fuels and the laptops we're on and all the seen and unseen forces that brought us together today. So thank you for your time, Armando. Shukran. Thank you, Armando. Thank you, Elnor. Yeah, it's a gift to to have such siblings on the path. We are being thrown down this initiatory descent. We may find our way and we may not. Let us walk each other into the unknown. As we surrender control, traverse thresholds, and re-enter the continuum of life and death. And with that, we close. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot Podcast. This episode was edited by Theodore Lowry from StoryPaths. And the music you heard during the intro was by Little Whale. To learn more about Earthshot Labs, visit our website, www.earthshot.eco.